Fred, where did you get that crazy vintage Festina jersey I saw you wearing the other day on the ride? Dude, you think that's old? What about my Spinergy Rev-X wheels? That is a hazard. I'm afraid you're going to cut off your finger with one of those things. Uh, Spencer, I get all of my old used stuff at VeloSwap which is coming up this weekend. For those of you who don't know, Veloswap's like my favorite day of the year. It is held at the National Western Complex in Denver, and it is the world's largest used bicycle swap meet. Imagine a cavernous building filled to the brim with various people selling all of their used bicycle parts dating back years and years and years. That is Veloswap, and it's coming up this Saturday, National Western uh, Complex. $10 at the door. Spencer's going to be there, right? We're both going to be there. We're going to be manning the stage, keep, keeping the keeping the fans entertained. And uh, we're also probably going to go browse the wares ourselves. I'm hoping to find some some sort of cool like 80s, uh, I don't know, like like one of those Edo helmets yeah. that... Uh, yeah. That, uh, you will find it there. Greg Herbald used to wear something like that. Would be pretty cool. I think I'm going to find some uh, Sun Tour derailers and maybe a suspension stem or a soft ride bike with a suspension boom and build up just a totally awesome death machine. Bike. Yeah. Well, we'll be there. And if you're in the Denver area, you should come find us there. It's on Saturday and uh, 10 bucks at the door. More information, veloswap.com. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Villainous Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. It is a Monday afternoon in Boulder, Colorado. I'm here in the bowels of the Villainous World headquarters, joined by Dane Cash. Hello, Dane Cash. Hey, Fred. Dane, we didn't have any bike racing to watch this weekend. I know. It was a rough weekend for yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Did you have to like interact with people? Well, I actually interacted with bike fans and and uh, some riders anyway. Oh, that's right. You went to the EF uh, Save Argyle Fan Dealy Bob. I did, yeah. Uh, the EF team had a had a ride event here in Boulder. They had one in Girona as well uh, to uh, kind of celebrate the fans who helped the Save Argyle initiative last year, the, the crowdfunding initiative. So I got my fix of, of bike racing, of bike racer types. Now, Dane, as part of the Save Argyle thing, they were giving out like tote bags and coffee mugs, a lot of NPR-themed mm -hmm. uh, like gifts. Now, were people actually receiving those this weekend? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I think oh. people had received them, some of the people had received them already, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then I actually talked to another couple of people who said, Fred, it wasn't about the swag. It's about saving the team. Yeah, right. It's so, always about the swag. Uh, well, kudos to those cycling fans who donated their hard-earned money to save Argyle. And I hope that they just love their uh, NPR tote bags and, uh, and gifts. Spencer Paulison is also in the house. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Fred. Spencer, you, <laughs> you did the Halloween cross thing, didn't you? Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Always, always, always wear a costume for the cross race. That's like Halloween weekend or the weekend before Halloween or whatever. I mean, come on. It's like. You're not winning a World Cup here, people. Like, just, just, just have some fun. Well, I was checking out your Instagram, and not only was it a costume, it was a Ninja Turtles costume. Yep, I was Donatello, okay, the purple Ninja Turtle. He was with a the, smart with one, the right? staff. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just uh, the only reason I picked purple was because that was the color T-shirt I had to cut up because to make my bandana for uh -huh. my for my face. So you know, I feel like for some killer future Vela News content. We're going to have to do like top 10 best costumes to race cross in, you yeah. know? It's an art. It's a real art form. You have to make sure it's really recognizable, but not too complex. 
and you know kind of fun but the witty thing doesn't work because it's a little too quick you just pass by people don't have time to figure out what the joke is and but also it needs to be kind of compact and it has to be you know fit nicely so it's not too bulky or get in the way if you're dismounting you don't want to you know be tripping over some huge cardboard thing but i'll tell you what i've seen some pretty amazing ones remember that uh person who had the the star wars x-wing uh costume from a few years ago i think that was a cross race out and uh, i think in new england i think they do like orchard cross in massachusetts or something like that one of my buddies sent me an instagram the other day uh with those costumes and they know how to party. That's yeah. that's a Halloween cross race. That's what I'm talking about. I was going to say, function has to go into it too. I remember racing a Halloween cross race one time and a guy dressed as a cowboy wearing tight, tight, tight jeans passed me, but I was able to pass him on the run up because running in those tight jeans, mm. just not, you know, it was, it was too tight of a jean. Right. Still very good costume because like I said, recognizable, yeah. pretty easy to wear. Uh, maybe he should have gone with jorts, jean shorts. Ooh, that could have been chaps. like a little bit of a performance. It could be a never chaps would be, chaps <laughs> yeah, never knew. Like Tobias and in arrested development. Good one. Uh, nice. uh, chaps might get you arrested. Dane, I like where your head is at though. Uh, but we're not here to talk about spooky cyclocross races. We're here to talk about the world's biggest by grace. That's right. Dirty Kansas. Oh wait, no, just It's the Tour de France, guys, because this past week, the Tour de France had its grand route unveiling in a a ceremony that is now and annually becoming something to look forward to in that uh, middle to end of October. That is the grand unveiling of the Tour de France. Christian Prudhomme always says some words. They have past tour champions show up. It's usually held at like some theater somewhere. This year they had uh, Miguel Indurain. They had Bernard Hino. They had all of the big champs there. I think Consider was there. Yeah, and definitely. And this is also the time when all the pro cyclists bust out their sport coats. Yeah. But then they somehow forget to wear a collared shirt underneath them. So they just end up with a T-shirt and a sport coat. Because apparently that's what you do in Europe. No, no, no. That's like you're like an influencer. That's like when you're a tech guy, you know, and you're like you wear. A thinkfluencer. Yeah, you're a thinkfluencer. That just means you're Miguel Indurain. Ooh, sidebar. Miguel Indurain, he's not aging anymore. He looks mm-hmm. the same today as he did 10 years ago. I feel like he aged a bit or a lot after he retired, and now he's just staying the same age. That's probably the Mediterranean diet. Good for him. He, uh, I think he was one of the ones, though, with the, with the collar shirt. So respect to Miguel Indurain. So, guys, let's get into it. We have a Tour de France route to talk about. We have a very interesting route this year that completely skips half of the country. The Tour de France route this year basically skirts the eastern edge of France, hits the Vosges, hits the Pyrenees and the Alps before returning to Paris, Uh, completely skips over Normandy, Brittany, um, anything basically west of like uh, Tours. Um, So... Dane, what were you thinking when you saw this route come out? Well, I have two thoughts on that. The first thought would be it kind of reminds you of the Giro in recent years where they just skip all of southern Italy. And they have gone to southern Italy in the last couple of years, which is nice. But they do that sometimes with the Giro where it's just more of the tour of northern Italy. Uh, But, you know, you have to say with the Tour de France that they have spent quite a bit of time in Brittany recently. And I was in Brittany for quite a bit of time for this past Tour de France, for instance. Because the first, I mean, the first seven stages of this last Tour de France were in that sort of part of Western France, Brittany, um, and then the kind of the Loire Valley where uh, we're not going in 2019. So maybe they feel like they've gotten their fill of that part of France for a little while. 
I'm into it, but I do miss those like windswept echelon days yeah. where they get close to the North Sea. Now, we should say the Tour de France is starting in Belgium, which is very exciting to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Eddie Merckx's first tour win. Uh, the first stage, I believe, starts in Charleroi. Ever, anyone ever been to Charleroi? I know. Charleroi is, oh, poor Charleroi. It's kind of an industrial hellhole. We comment on the industrialness of the Wallonia region quite often when talking about bike races. Yeah, so it's true. Sorry to the Walloons out there. I mean, I just I remember seeing a photo gallery one time uh, online that it was like the forgotten industrial hellholes of Europe, and it had like four <laughs> photos from Charleroi. Anyway, that's where Flesh Malone starts, and it finishes in uh, Brussels, which I'm sure will be very nice. But this year's tour route is, I would say. And it, a mix between a throwback to a route in that it goes to some really classic climbs, the Col de Isuar, the Galibier, um, some towns that we go to every single year, Po, uh, Foix, um, Gap, places like that. And it is also a new and inventive tour route because we have some more short mountainous stages. Disruptive. We have a summit finish on gravel. Oh, so hot right now, gravel. Yeah. And we yeah, have guys, a that. lack of time trialing, specifically a lack of that like final time trial that seems to hang over the entire route where you're just waiting for someone to uncork one that really delivers a completely different flavor to this year's route. So shall we start with the takes? Yeah, well, so like you said, the time trialing, 27 kilometers in this 2019 route in total of individual time trialing. My question is, why does the ASO hate Tom Dumoulin? Yeah, that's rough. I, I I think Tom Tom Dumoulin is a great addition to the sort of drama of the GC battle and these grand tours. He's the rider we need to face off against Chris Froome, Team Sky. He's proven himself. He's won a grand tour. He was second in the Giro and the Tour last year, which is a pretty impressive feat, only topped by doubling up, of course. And uh, he... I, I don't get it. And at this point, I, I don't see any reason why Tom Dumoulin should focus on the tour because it's just not going to be to his strengths. Well, so as we can, as we all know, ASO in the last few years has actually been designing its routes to challenge Team Sky and to break the Team Sky dominance. So my question is, uh, Spencer, your take about Tom Dumoulin is Tom Dumoulin an unintended consequence? Is he an unintended victim of ASO's attempts to build a tour route that will break the stranglehold of Team Sky and their controlled racing? Yeah, maybe he is. And also, I would add that if, if that is the intent of ASO, then clearly they haven't been paying attention in the last like seven or eight years. If you look back to the only other Tour de France that had fewer time trial, individual time trial kilometers, 2015, we all remember Chris Froome had his way with that Tour de France. It's not like focusing strictly on very hard high climbs is going to somehow give all these climbers a chance to take on Chris Froome. I mean, if you haven't if you haven't been paying attention, he's the best climber in the world when it comes to Grand Tours. Period. Like, don't talk to me about Nairo Quintana or Simon Yates. Get the heck out of here. Nobody compares to Chris Froome when it comes to Grand Tour climbing. Yeah, I think people are still. I don't know. Back in the day, five years ago, six years ago, people sort of looked at Chris Froome and they said, "Oh, this guy's a time trialist." And I think that was because of the way Brad Wiggins won his tour. But Froome is an excellent climber, and clearly the ASO hasn't been paying attention, thinking that by throwing a bunch of climbs at him, it's going to change Sky's you know, game plan. And they're going to like that. They're going to do something with that no matter what. And it seemed to me like the best guy to challenge Chris Froome, Gary Thomas, would, would have been Tom Dumoulin. So if they're doing this sort of 
anti-time trialist route to try to break Sky's dominance. That seems pretty silly. Well, I don't think it's just an anti-time trialist route. I think what they're trying to do is to break the tempo climbing um, pattern that benefits Team Sky. Having the ability to have five domestiques on the front, everyone tapping out 400 watts uh, for these long climbs and then down the other side and then setting up so-and-so for the win. If you look at this race, we have five summit finishes. We have three short stages that are under 130 kilometers in length. And we have uh, seven times over 2,000 meters. So a lot has been talking about how this race gets extremely high. It's the highest Tour de France ever. They uh, they go over, uh, what's the name of this? Uh, the highest pass, paved pass in Europe, the Col de Lazaran, which is like, it's like 9,000 feet, which, you know, I mean, we're Coloradans here, so we're kind of altitude snobs. Uh, the altitude of my house is like the altitude at the top of some of these, uh, you know, big summit finishes in the Alps. But that's, you know, 9,000 feet. That's legit. So I think what they're playing around with is... What are ways in which we can make this tempo, riding, boring um, format of the tour go away? Well, the, the, the whole thing about trying to reduce the amount of tempo climbing, Fred, is I, I don't think they've done it with this route because especially if you look to the final stages in the Alps, a lot of these summit finishes that they're throwing in the mix here, they're really long, gradual climbs, especially this final one in stage 20 to Valtorin. That thing is, it's it's an eternal climb. It's 33 kilometers, 5.5% average gradient. There's not any big ramps on this long climb that would potentially give a guy like Nairo Quintana or someone else a chance to actually throw in a real attack. This is going to be a Sky Team time trial. Furthermore, the, the stages before that are all fairly long, gradual climbs. So, I mean, this plays into Sky's hand as far as I'm concerned in the Alps. Well, actually, here's the thing, Spencer. There's only 12 climbs over 10 kilometers this in, in this entire race. And um, the tour of the pass would usually go well above 15 climbs over 10K or more. And like the Giro, you compare that to. And I think they have like, there's like 10 to 15 climbs over 10 kilometers in length in the final week. So I know that there are a number of these monsters, but I think in aggregate, there's actually fewer number of uh, of the long crusher climbs that historically we think of Team Sky killing. Plus, there's a couple of these weird little elements like the summit finish to Planche de Belfis, stage six. You know, you look at that climb, that was a climb that was made famous uh, in the battle between, um, I think Chris Froome actually won there the year that uh, Brad Wiggins, that was 2012. And then we saw the really interesting finish there a few years ago, uh, 2017, when um, Fabio Aru when he had his moment of glory before he was reduced to uh, yelling at um, Campagnolo parts on the side <laughs> of the road. Oh, what are you doing, Fabio Aru? But I think I think that the organizers look to these elements to try and sow chaos. Uh, will it happen? I, I'm, I'm a skeptic. I, I actually, I'm with you on that camp. I don't think it's going to do that. I will say they've done a really nice thing, and you, and you brought it up with La Planche de Belfi, of uh, putting some intriguing stuff, some compelling stages in the first uh, block, the first pre-rest day block of racing. It's, you know, I want to say the first week, but it's really the first nine or ten days, actually. With La Planche de Belfi, you've got, I mean, you've got some serious gradients in that finale, like 20%, and there's a gravel stretch. There's a gravel stretch on this amazing climb that we all know after the finish we're used to seeing, and I think that's going to mix things up. And that's not the kind of excitement that you often get from the tour uh, just a week into the race. A lot of times you get these tours de France where they give you quite a few boring days in the first 
five, six, seven stages of the race. So we actually will be able to enjoy, hopefully, some GC racing there. And then on some of the other days in this first block, there's a couple of hills, a couple of short, steep climbs. So hopefully we get some interesting stuff before we even get to the Alps or the Pyrenees. And again, that doesn't always happen with the Tour de France. Well, Dane, you wrote earlier, uh, well, I guess last week, right after the tour announcement came out, what you loved and what you hated about the race. So are those some of the things that are falling into the love category? I would say that the La Planche de Belfi stage checked a bunch of the boxes for things that I was looking for in the love category. You got early excitement. You've got chaos potentially from gravel. And then just the fact that it's a summit finish. I think we've actually seen a bit of a, a drop off in summit finishes in recent years where we have a bunch of stages that they go up these really high summits and then they go back down the other side. So the fact that we finish uh, on, a, on a hillside or a mountainside, that's also excellent. So a lot of love in that La Planche de Belfi stage. There are going to be five total mountaintop finishes in this tour, which is, I'd, I'd say, a good number. Definitely. Uh, what are you hating in it, Dane? Well, you know, we talked about the time trial lack. That's something that I'm not really a fan of. I think it uh, not only is it not not going to achieve what ASO intended, I think also you need time trials to kind of keep the climbers honest. Because a lot of times in a race without much time trialing, you just get the same one guy just dominating everybody through the whole race. And we've seen that before. Uh, We've seen it in recent Giros. Uh, So I think you need a time trial to kind of keep those guys honest. So I don't love that. And then one other thing that I was really hoping for out of this tour was that they would cut the sprint stages down to a shorter length. I'm not saying we need to cut sprint stages out of the race. But if you're going to have a sprint stage where nothing happens, it would be much better if it were only 130K instead of 230K like we got last year on stage 7. Got to hear all about the Chart Cathedral, which was really cool. But that wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. Um, This year... Stage seven, yet again, going to be a 230K possible snooze fest. Not really loving that, so uh, oh well. Yeah, and piggybacking on your time trial point, let's all remember how the Giro played out with Simon Yates, and he put in an amazing effort in that time trial, but then he paid for it the next day, and it just adds a really like scintillating dynamic to the to the tour or to any grand tour. When you, when you see a climber like that in the leader's jersey going completely in the red to try and stay close on a time trial. And then the question is whether that was the right strategic move when you're playing the long game. So uh, a lot has been said that this is a race that caters to the French stars. Uh, we had Samuel Abt write a column on VeloNews.com likening Christian Prudhomme to the guy from King Kong unveiling uh, Chained Kong. And this route was, was supposedly it's a good comparison. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, trying to chain Clever. Team Sky and to set up the French. So when we think of riders like Thibaut Pino, Roman Bardet, Julien Alaphilippe, you know, punchy, explosive climbers who can get time here and there, but don't have the time trialing ability. Uh, what do we think? Do we think that uh, ASO succeeded in creating a route for the Frenchies? I mean, I think they did their best. I think they've done a, a nice route here for the French guys to finish maybe third or fourth instead of ninth <laughs> or tenth. But the, the equation requires the, the French talents to be good enough to still beat Sky on the climbs. And I don't know that we've seen that. Even on the really hard climbing days, they're still losing to Froome, Thomas, even Tom Dumoulin sometimes. So, yeah, they've tried. <laughs> Admirable effort. It would be nice if the Thibaut Pino that we saw in September and October this year is the Thibaut Pino who shows up in July, the Tour de France, because clearly figured out a way to get on form late in the season, winning Lombardia. He just looked great. And, uh, you know, he's been there before. He's gotten on a tour podium before, and 
he's not exactly the world's best time trialist, so this could play to his advantage. And he's he he likes a punchy finish too. He does have a have a knack for those. There's a few of them. I could see him I could see him being in the mix on Planche de Belfi. I could see him being there too. And my hope with Pino is that he keeps his powder dry until that final week. I really think this is a route. This year is going to be a tour that is one in the Alps. You know, we do have some um, very challenging days in the Pyrenees, but to me, it seems like this is all about the Alps, where you have these three big mountain stages right in a row, uh, culminating with the summit finish to Val Thuron. And, you know, I, to me, that's where it's going to be decided. The other factor I would throw in the mix, talking generally about the route, is just that this is a high altitude race as far as, as, it, as it goes. There's a lot of climbs that go over 2,000 meters, and I don't really know whether we can easily say which which rider would be better for that sort of thing or not but it's easy to sort of assume that a colombian would be generally better suited for it since a lot of those guys are born at altitude they live at altitude in the off season they know how to handle it they came up racing at altitude so that's another factor that could play in i wonder if we're going to see some of our tour favorites adopt altitude training methods like we tend to see with the american mountain bike crowd you know where you like drive your pickup truck up mm. to uh, like the ski area, park like in the it. parking lot, like sleep out there. I think Todd Wells used to drive his drive his car up to the top of Mount Lemon, do some nights sleeping up there. Think of the great content they could produce. Oh, um, so original! Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, so cool. I'm here in my in my pickup truck here on Vale Pass. Oh, put a put a little kettle on. It's a bit chilly up here. A bit of tea. I have to say, I think uh, we didn't see a lot. We didn't see what we expected to see from Nairo Quintana this past year. We did not. Yeah, we didn't no. really see it the year before. I mean, it's been a little while since we've seen Nairo Quintana do what everybody knows mm. he was at one point capable of doing. If there is ever going to be a tour where Nairo Quintana is going to be favored to do well, it's this upcoming Tour de France. And I feel like the pressure is starting to mount for him. So there might be a fair bit of pressure going into this tour, but it is a pretty well-suited route for Nairo Quintana. Very good point. And there is a story on VeloNews.com right now from Andrew Hood, who is at the Movistar team camp, where Quintana is talking about that very thing. And he essentially admits that they made some mistakes in the way that he did his training this year. And he was putting up great numbers in some of his training rides. And then when he went to the tour, he was nowhere to be seen. He would be, the, the numbers were not there. And something... The wires got crossed, and somehow the training didn't time didn't time out right. It didn't sync up with his goal races, so maybe they figure it out next year. I think they made mistakes in training, in racing, in traveling to the races, in, I don't know, every eating the day way. before. There were every possible way. Movistar was the team of mistakes this year. Across the board, pretty much. Oh, yeah, they did get some pretty pretty big wins, though. you gotta, uh, you got to admit. I I'm mean, still holding out hope here, though, with my high-altitude thing. I, you know, I'm putting the, putting the call out here. Euro riders. We here in Colorado, we have Mount Evans. We have a road that goes up to 14,200 feet. Think about it. Get ready for that Tour de France by just going and camping out up there. Come visit. Yeah, it'd be fun. I think actually uh, one year the USA Pro Challenge, Froome and Richie Port came to race the race. I don't believe either of them finished. No, they did not take it very seriously. But um, some VeloNews readers sent us photos of uh, running into them riding up Mount Evans. Anyway, this reader was like out there riding on Mount Evans and saw these guys in sky kits riding up it. And we're like, who are these jamokes and sky kill? Oh my God, that's Chris Froome. <laughs> wow, that's a really skinny super fan. And his little brother. <laughs> oh wait, no, that's Richie Port. Uh, but yeah, come train in the thin air of Colorado. Well, anything else we need to say? We have any any takes, it's holstered takes that we need to unleash? I'm going to say that 
Before the first rest day of this tour, Peter Sagan has won five stages. Oh, wow. He's going to clean up this first week. There's a number of lumpy stages, uh, which should which should result in some exciting finishes. He, I'm sure he has a good shot at winning at least one of the traditional flat sprint finishes, maybe the first day. I don't know. It has the mirror in it early on, but that's not going to be too selective. But this is going to be a nice first nine stages for Peter Sagan. I think it's nine before the rest day. I don't I- we're talking about the Murrah, I think uh, that's one other thing that I love about this route is that we start in Belgium, and yeah, the first stage, it will probably be a sprint, just because it's not that hard. It's not the Tour of Flanders, but they visit a lot of that Tour of Flanders terrain, and that's really cool. I love that they're doing that. It's going to give some more international exposure to maybe the less tuned-in fans. Uh, you know, they're going to be talking about it on NBC, and they're going to tell be telling people about the Tour of Flanders, because that's where we're going to be, on the Murrah, etc. And uh, this is, you know, that's my favorite part of cycling country. I, I love the Tour of Flanders. I love the classics. So I'm, I'm loving that it's getting some exposure at the Tour de France. Good. I will say, I will say though, a bit of a missed opportunity. They didn't, they did not, I don't think they're using enough of those mirrors and yeah, could have finished cobbles and everything. And it, it's, it, I, I think a bit of a missed opportunity. They, they needed more of those classic Flanders climbs to really do the region justice. Yeah, I feel like last year, so much was made about the Roubaix stage using legitimate Roubaix cobblestones to sow chaos within the bunch. And some of these other, I wouldn't call them necessarily gimmicks, but maybe a little bit on the gimmicky side, you know, the number grid uh, for the start of one of the of the 100 kilometer stage. And this year seems like we are gimmick less Zero gimmicks in this year's tour, even though, yeah, mm. I would have liked to have seen some uh, Helligans, some cobbled climbs, maybe in that opening stage. Disappointing. Yeah. Well, missed okay. opportunity. Yeah. So, Dan, you love the Belgian side, so I guess you're, you'll be going to the first half. I'll be going to the second That's, half. I guess it's decided then. More yeah, time in the, in the Belgian heartland. I mm. already I already know the bad Airbnb that Hoodie's going to book us in Poe <laughs> and the weird restaurant that we're going to eat at in Foix. Long, um, just looking the at, long transfer from yeah. the final mountain stage to Paris. Ooh, I hope there's another horror story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, It's going to be a great tour. I'm excited. And I think Sky... Sky is for sure excited. It's totally very excited it's about this. child's play. Come on. Uh, guys, you know who else is excited about this year's Tour de France? Christian Prudhomme, head of ASO. Mm. Uh, well, he's the head of the Tour de France. He was at the uh, unveiling ceremony just just lighting hot takes off left and right. <laughs> and probably the hottest take he had uh, concerned power meters because... A little too much wine in the green room or something, maybe? Yeah, he came out with a very public statement that said that the tour is going to investigate banning power meters. What's the official statement here? Well, I, I don't I don't think they are going to investigate it. I think that the ASO, the tour, they're putting pressure on the UCI to potentially ban power meters or find a way to stop them from having such an influence on racing tactics. But the real gem of this entire situation is the quote from Prudhomme, which says essentially that he thinks power meters, and I quote now, annihilate the glorious uncertainty of sport, Mm. which that's awesome. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) The glorious uncertainty of sport that's annihilated by your devilish power meters. Yeah. That's a big word, annihilate. Yes. That's a powerful word. Strong mm. word. Uh, it is true, though, that um, at least in the last few years, Power Meter has been blamed for what we've seen going on 
at the top level of, I will say, grand tour racing. Uh, the controlled style of racing that we now see at the Tour de France, where breakaways go and they always seem to get brought back right at the right time, where a front group of sky riders ride around at a very high tempo, at just the right tempo to shed people, but not shed their own team leader who then zips away for the win. And this controlled style of racing we see at the Tour, we don't really see it. I mean... I don't. I feel like I, we don't see it as much at the classics, Definitely at not. big one day races. No, classics are just different because it's one, it's all in one day. You, you don't have to plan out twenty one days of racing and recovery and everything. And even at the Vuelta, I mean, think about this year's Vuelta, the Vuelta of breakaway success. Every day it seemed like a breakaway one. Simon Yates was buzzing around, zipping around, dropping people. Mm-hmm. Um, it that did not have the feel of a controlled race. Um, but the question is, are these power meters actually to blame? And right now on VeloNews.com, we have an interesting story, a book excerpt actually, titled, Is Technology Killing Tactics? And it's an excerpt from a uh, recently published book by Peter Cousins called How the Race Was Won, Cycling's Top Minds Reveal the Road to Victory, uh, now out from Velo Press. So check your local bookstores and VeloPress.com. But in this excerpt, Cousins specifically attacks the um, attacks the attacks against race radios and power meters. This thought that race radios and power meters have sucked the life out of racing. Uh, guys, what do you think? Yeah, I see some it's, like uh, I see some faces thinking maybe that's not the real culprit. Yeah, I think for starters, Peter Cousins really does a nice job with this this chapter. It's really well reported, talks to a lot of professionals, examines some different scenarios. The race radio thing, I feel like that debate's kind of dead by that by now. I feel like everyone's decided they're going to keep them in the top world tour races. I don't think that's going to change very much. Now the power meter side of it, that's that's a little different and I think there's a lot of misconceptions about power meters. I think that a guy like Christian Prudhomme or or your average armchair fan probably doesn't quite understand how a power meter is used day-to-day in training and how these professional riders have a very, very fine sense of how hard they're going. And they can tell pretty well if they're hitting a number or not, even if they're not looking at their power meter. So to, to just assume that there'd be no way for Team Sky to ride a mean tempo at the front of a Peloton and chase back a breakaway or make Nairo Quintana cry or something like that. I I just don't see it. I think that these guys are, they're professional enough and they know their bodies enough that they're able to ride this tempo with or without a power meter. Yeah, I think it was uh, Marco Pignati who had a really good comment that said when he started racing with a power meter, um, he noticed that everyone started looking at their power meters and racing according to them. And, um, you know, it did have there was this period in which people really were racing but, you know, being dictated by what they saw on the screen. And then after a few years and, you know, becoming more comfortable with it and, you know, learning what that power felt like in terms of effort, it was like he would only glance down at it every now and again. And maybe the racing, the controlled racing style 
continued, but it was based more off of people's perceptions of their power output. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, this book makes it seem a lot less cut and dry than one might think. And I know as a fan, sometimes I look at a very controlled Tour de France stage and I think to myself, ah, you know, ban the power meter, do what they have to do to make this a little bit more exciting. But it sounds like from the perspective of some of these riders that, um, you know, the genie's kind of already out of the bottle on that one. One of the quotes that I found really sort of informing in that story that Peter Cousins did, or in that chapter, I should say, is I, th I think it was TJ Van Garderen who he said, you know, when these guys, when these pro riders are looking at their power meters in the Peloton, it's similar to someone just pulling out their smartphone and just like check Twitter or check Instagram or something. It's it's not like, it's, it's almost like a nervous tick at this point where they're just kind of glancing at it just to see what's going on. I mean, there's boring moments in a bike race. We all know that. So sometimes you just need something to look at. And, and there's also been plenty of very aggressive riders that have used their power meters, you know, despite that being this sort of thing that people are blaming. I mean, Alberto Contador uses power meter all the time. He, you could see him looking at that quite often. He talked about it. He also was kind of advocating for them to get rid of them, but he seemed to show that you could ride with a power meter and still be a very aggressive rider. They don't necessarily need to be opposing things. Well, I think there's a big gap of just simply riding with a power meter and then riding with the controlled style that a power meter or that sort of modern training and racing um, theories around using that uh, power meter promotes, which is basically the Skyway or the Contador way, you know, looking at, you know, it's one thing to have a power meter on your bike and be Contador and being like, ah, venga, 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 I'm just going to go for it <laughs> versus the Skyway, which is, okay, we have five guys who are cranking out 400 watts. We know that if we calculate that if we have X amount of kilometers left and, you know, we keep the, the pace here, we'll lose two of our guys and then Chris Room will be fine. Sort of that calculated way. Totally. And if, if we all remember that day on the Finestra and the Giro this year, that story that came out afterward of just the insane nutrition plan that they had figured out for Chris Froome to exactly plan his effort perfectly. I mean, the Skyway is not just looking at a power meter. It's an all-encompassing approach to bike racing. And just taking away their power meters isn't really going to change that significantly. It's it's still They're still going to take that scientific approach that pulls out all the stops to make sure everything, every detail is attended to, every variable is controlled. And, um, you know, the, the, the other thing I'll say about power meters is, and, and this is also mentioned in the story, there's a lot of variability day to day. Sometimes you're on a great day and you're just going to blow your numbers out of the water and it's just going to be higher than your threshold. And it may be, maybe someone would be a little scared and off put by it, but if you can hold it, you can go, you'll just You'll, you'll ride better than you expected. And then there's days when the numbers are terrible and there's not always an explanation for that. Yeah, I see this as a um, the power meter is the tool, but the know-how and the knowledge is actually what enables you to maybe use it properly or use it to that level. You know, there were the comments from TJ Van Garter who basically said that some days I feel great and I can, you know, crush 420 watts and other days, you know, I'm struggling to have it right at 400. And so if you are that, you know, if you do race with that type of style, then the power meter in, in its value is also going to be very dependent on just how leg, how, how good your legs are. So it's sort of one of those things where it's like, yeah, man, the power meter, if you have eight dudes that have awesome legs day in, day out is a really useful tool. But if, you know, if you're more of a variable rider, like you still need to have really good legs in order to win. And that gets back to the whole thing of why it's not a big deal for like a classics race because you're just you're just going all out. And, and the only power meter you have is the power meter of like getting dropped by someone being like, well, I guess that wasn't enough power. <laughs> yeah, of being Vincenzo Nibali trying to hold Nikki Terpstra's wheel yeah. and being like, oh my God, this 
giant man is very strong. It's a, it's a binary power meter where it's like thumbs up, <laughs> thumbs down. <laughs> Win, lose. Smiley face, yeah. sad face. That would be funny if they developed a heavy unit like that yeah. where it's just like, you're good, you're good, you're good, you're oh, you're bad. <laughs> Sorry, not going to win Flanders today. Better luck next time. They would charge like three grand for that, right? Yeah, mm, that would be yeah. a, it'd be disrupted. Oh, yeah. Disrupted. Well, I suggest everyone check this big book excerpt out online because I feel like it adds a lot of valuable perspective to the debate around power meters and racing, which I think gets simplified all too often. So again, book excerpt is Technology Killing Tactics, and it is from Peter Cousins' new book, How the Race Was Won, Cycling's Top Minds reveal the road to victory okay guys before we get out of here this week let's do a little off the front off the back what's hot what's not in the world of cycling spencer you are brimming with off the front off the backs yes i've got i've got three oh my gosh am i allowed to do three off the fronts well if you can do it Mm. speedily yeah okay off the front the giant of provence because they're gonna have a one-day pro race that finishes at the top of Mont Ventoux. Cool. Should mm. be pretty killer. Yeah. And it's gonna be the day after the Criterium de Dauphiné. So hopefully some of the hot shots from that race will stick around and do it. Probably not, but ouch. Be, be cool. And uh, you know, there's not many one-day races that have like a legit mountaintop summit finish like that, right? It's not a common thing. So no, there's that uh, Taiwan KOM challenge. That's true. That did just happen recently. Uh, uh, Boulder's own Meredith Miller. Retired uh, pro cross racer, former national champion, was out there doing it. And another off the front for me is biathlon, because apparently that's the new hot thing to do when you're training for pro bike racing. Was that when you ski and shoot? Uh, well, yeah, that's usually. what biathlon usually is. But uh, the Bora Hansgrohe team camp decided to get creative. They had a little biathlon relay, Peter Sagan, the rest of the crew from Bora. They were shooting stuff. They were pounding nails into stumps. They were riding their bikes. It was it was good. There's a video on Peter Sagan's uh, Twitter. You can check it out. And then my last off the front is bunny hopping. Because yesterday at the Cincinnati CX race, the UCI race here in U.S., was uh, it was it was a bit of a a bit of a tactical race and Gage Heck got away. It looked like he was going to win his second day in a row, but Kerry Werner bunny hopped the barriers, pulled back the gap on Gage Heck and out sprinted him, which is pretty impressive since Gage Heck is quite a pure roadie when it comes to you know high speed finish like that. So good on Kerry Werner for winning that Sunday race at the CCX. All right, what's off the back? Okay, just one off the back, and that is file tread tires because, like I said, the Cincy race. This past weekend, also, New Jersey race, another UCI race. Both of those were quite muddy. So, file tread season's over for a cross. you got to get the knobbies out. You know who loves mud? Uh, Ellen Noble. Yes, and she won both days at Cincy. So fast. Uh, Okay, I'll go next. Off the front is altitude training. Yeah, that's right. Go right up to the top of Mount Evans. Wait, like the truck thing you were saying earlier? Different type of altitude training. Uh, You know who's doing some altitude training? Fernando Gaviria, the Colombian sprinter, uh, who recently made headlines by jumping ship from Team Quickstep over to Team UAE Emirates. Uh, I'm looking at a photo on his Instagram right now. He's up in the Burj Khalifa, the giant tower in uh, downtown Dubai. And I think that counts as altitude training. How high is that? Let's see. He doesn't here. seem to be Burj riding a Khalifa. bike. He's there with oh. Christoph, and they're looking at stuff. My computer's not connected to the internet. I can't check. I think it's pretty high, though. It's definitely at he, least 100 feet. They hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, they got him a, uh, a suite up there so he could sleep up there during the team camp. Get a little of that, mm. get a little of that boost. So yeah, do your altitude training in Dubai. Off the back, you know what I have? It's being being normal, being a normal dude. 
Whoa. Yeah, that's Shot, right. Shots fired at us. Being normal will never never get you anywhere, so says Bradley Wiggins. Well, he didn't actually say that, but in kind of a roundabout way. Uh, he said Wiggins gave some interviews, blah, 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 blah. I feel privileged to be a member of this group of nutters, he said, being a Tour de France winner. We are not what you might call normal people, but normal certainly doesn't win you the tour. Sorry, Dane. Normal Ooh, guy. Not happening? Yeah. Ordinary average guy, not gonna win the tour. You gotta be Paz Normal to uh, win the Tour de France. <laughs> yeah, you do. Ooh, Definitely whoa. during that. How about that? Yeah, well, we go. All right, I can go next if you yeah. like. Yeah, off the front for me, I'm gonna go with uh, Poo Poo off the front. Ooh. Affectionate nickname for Raymond Poulador. Oh, yeah. You youngsters may know him as the grandfather of Matthew Vanderpool. Actually happened to be a great cyclist in his day. Won a Vuelta. I think it was uh, second in two tours de France. Quite a guy way back when. Uh, Raymond the Poulador. eternal second. Yeah, yeah, poor guy. But he's a good sport about it, and that's why he's off the front, because uh, at the Tour de France representation, ASO invited him up on stage with uh, Miguel Indurain and Bernard Eno. They had, some, they had some yellow jersey winners up there to celebrate the yellow jersey, and they also brought Raymond Poulador up there. And it was just sort of like, well, that guy didn't win, and this is kind of sad for him if you're bringing him up there. Are you trying to embarrass him or something? It's like that scene in Happy Gilmore where they're all in the clubhouse hanging out, and they all have the green jackets, and Happy Gilmore's like, how do I get one of those? Exactly. <laughs> but Pulador, good sport, uh, said something along the lines of, between us, we've won 15 tours to France. Yeah, he's a good guy, jovial guy. Pulador is sort of the mascot of the tour. He uh, is there every morning in the start village, drinking coffee, signing autographs, taking photos with uh, everybody. He's he's a good sport. Very popular with the French public. Love the poo poo. Definitely. Uh, off the back, let's go with Belgian book sales because uh-huh. I'm wondering, is anybody going to be buying Johan Bruyneel's book now that he's been banned for life? We might as well win. We might as well win. I think that book sales were already tanking on that one when things started to come to light. We might as well win on the road to success with the mastermind behind a record-setting eight Tour de France victories. <laughs> that book is, yeah, I just wonder if people are going to buy it now that he's been banned well, for life. Well, to bring this back to VeloSwap, I've definitely seen multiple copies of that book for sale at VeloSwap. Not, it's not about the bike, maybe? Under a dollar. Some bonus, <laughs> bonus uh, Lance books, too, thrown in for the mix. We might as well win. I love how casual it is. Eh. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on bellanews.com. Subscribe to the Bell News Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bell News on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine, And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Bell News Podcast is produced by Bell News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the Bell News Podcast are those of the individual... And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Party classic, Soul Drums. 